what the increased testing capacity does is that increases our ability to track the illness and create tracers. So um, if we can quickly identify positive people, we can look back in their history and see who they've come in contact with and then test those individuals and kind of help to contain it a little bit more. Ballast Office in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to The Ballast Life, a series of conversations highlighting respected professionals, community leaders, and important topics that are necessary to achieving financial cohesion. Hello and welcome to The Ballast Life podcast series. My name is Brian Burden. I'm partner and director of portfolio strategy at Ballast. Today is the last day of April, April 30th, 2020. And I am very excited today to have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Philip Overall, who's Medical Director of Emergency Services at St. Clair Regional Medical Center in Moorhead, Kentucky. Uh, thank you so much, Philip, for uh, taking the time to be with us today, uh, taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule. Um, we're happy to have you on. Happy to join in. Appreciate the offer. So before we jump in, can you kind of give us and the audience uh, an idea of, of kind of your background um, and your current role at the hospital, um, kind of what your day-to-day -day looks like? Sure. So um, I'm emergency medicine trained. I did my training um, at the University of Kentucky, the level one trauma center there, in, in specifically in emergency medicine. Um, afterwards, I, I moved out to St. Clair and Moorhead and have been there since. I started at St. Clair in 2012, and about two and a half years ago, I took over the uh, directorship. So now I'm the medical director of emergency services at St. Clair and kind of handle um, a lot of the logistics and operational stuff when it comes to providing emergency services to patients that come into the emergency room. Very good. And you have, uh, you have a special role currently, uh, I believe, uh, with regard to uh, the current pandemic is that correct yeah i um i was also named uh fortunately temporarily uh for the uh the duration of the pandemic i'm also the medical director of pandemic response so i am also um in charge of handling all of the um the response to the pandemic from the medical aspect of it, not necessarily the logistics like obtaining PPE and that kind of thing. I handle more of the medical management and education of the medical staff in terms of the medical management. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of us to get our information on this, on this issue, there are so many different outlets, so many different sources of information and data. Um, one that I follow uh, rather closely and I know a lot of others do is the, the John Hopkins COVID Resource Center. Um, they track number of cases, deaths, fatality rates, et cetera. Um, I'm curious to, to hear from you kind of what you focus on uh, for your own research. You know, we actually use that quite a bit as well um, as kind of a reference, just to kind of see where the trends are, um, the rise in uh, positive rates, the overall case fatality rate. We look at that as well. Um, and just kind of take that um, into consideration when we're when we're looking at um, kind of medical uh, treatment recommendations and that kind of thing. We look more towards the CDC and the WHO, and we're trying to tailor our response 
uh, at St. Clair um, to the recommendations by the CDC and the WHO. So that way we're at least using um, highly regarded government agencies to, to tailor our care and response. Right. Is, is, that, is that information something that the public can, uh, has access to, or is that strictly for, for those in the medical field? Yeah, no, it's absolutely out there. I mean, you can, uh, you can find the CDC's recommendations and the uh, WHO's recommendations um, online, uh, publicly, um, on the internet. Okay, great. Yeah, you just, you just mentioned uh, briefly uh, the term PPE, and uh, I know we, everyone's heard a lot about that. And, you know, we've heard, you know, a lot of those in the medical field that have been voicing their frustrations over, you know, the lack of supplies, in particular PPE. Um, have you come across any of those same frustrations uh, at your hospital, or have you, have you heard of others in the state that are experiencing those same uh, issues getting getting the supplies they need. Yeah, um, I think everybody's run into it. Uh, every hospital's run into it in some degree. When we first started this, we quickly assessed our PPE, what we had, what we needed, and the burn rate um, of of our PPE daily. And we have to look at that burn rate in terms of managing normal patients, but then also if you do get a COVID positive patient in your hospital, that burn rate goes up exponentially. And so we've had to not only monitor our daily burn rate for normal operations, but also create a plan of our, um, our PPE needs and burn rate based on if we get one, two, half a dozen or a dozen positive patients. Um, Personally, at St. Clair, uh, specifically, I guess, um, we've run into issues with face shields. Um, we're kind of, uh, we're initially a little low on face shields. And the response from the community has been just awesome. My neighbor uh, works at Lexmark, and he asked me, he said, what, what can we do for you guys? And I told him, I said, I can bring you a blank face shield and just see what you guys can do bring him a blank face shield. He makes some calls, him and his uh, team get together and they worked with uh, Big Ass Fans, Hitachi, uh, Tempur-Pedic and Lexmark, all four of them worked together and have started assembling face shields. We're getting the foam from Tempur-Pedic and Lexmark's providing the face shield. Hitachi's doing, I think the assembly and Big Ass Fans is doing some of the adhesive stuff. And so it's been really neat that local um, companies have kind of banded together to help the medical community out and so the, together they've provided St. Clair with well over 200 face shields fully assembled and are now starting to gear their distribution more towards the state so the state can then allocate those things to places in need. Um, yeah, that's, along that's those lines, oh it's just been awesome, absolutely awesome. Along those lines Lexmark donated us 1,000 N95 um, respirators um, they have also built and developed or developed and built several intubation boxes for us and along with actually some other uh, local companies have done the same and so we have uh, a good supply of intubation boxes now that help protect us whenever we are putting these patients on ventilators uh, keeping us all safe and it's just been really really cool yeah it's great to hear you know so so much of the community is has come together and stepped up in, in this very difficult, challenging time. It really is a, a good, a good sign, you know, for, for humanity. And you know, I was thinking earlier, Phil, the last time that you and I were together, 
uh, I believe was in the beginning of March. So kind of when this thing was, was really starting to ramp up and, you know, we were with our daughters uh, in, a, in a room packed with hundreds of people. Uh, we were packing meals to be sent off to Haiti. And um, just a, a week or two prior to that, we were out uh, with our wives and two other couples having dinner in a packed restaurant. Um, so just how much things have changed in, in just uh, a number of weeks is, is amazing. But my point is, I, I remember you, you telling me that day um, that you would, people were coming into the hospital uh, wanting to be tested or the doctors were referring patients to the ER wanting to be tested. But, you know, at that time you weren't, I don't think you had the ability to, to test yet. Um, so I assume that today you're able to do that. Can you kind of walk me through how that process has evolved? Yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest evolutions that we've seen in this crisis. So initially we had no ability to test. Um, all of the testing had to run through the state. You had to meet very certain guidelines to even be able to test a patient that you thought was um, at risk for having it. Um, and unfortunately, early on, we were seeing patients that very well may have had it, but we didn't have the capacity to test them. And it wasn't just specifically St. Clair. It was the state in general didn't have the capacity to test them. Um, many of these patients, for example, if, if you came in with symptoms of COVID-19 early on and you weren't being hospitalized, you didn't meet criteria to even be tested. And so you would just go back out into the community and you were told to self-isolate and, um, you know, local health departments would follow up with you. That has changed tremendously now. We have several labs in the state, um, in, including the pre-existing state lab, but now UK is doing in-house testing, U of L is doing in-house testing, there's a gravity lab in Northern Kentucky that's doing testing, um, and there's now big testing sites that have ramped up in the state. Um, we are almost to the point where we can do our own in-house testing. We're hoping to have that done in the next week. So we will be able to test our own patients and with uh, what I understand about a one hour turnaround time on our tests. What the increased testing capacity does is that increases our ability to track the illness and create tracers. So um, if we can quickly identify positive people, we can look back in their history and see who they've come in contact with and then test those individuals and kind of help to contain it a little bit more. Uh, so we've come a long way in terms of testing. I think we've still got a long way to go, but we are now able to do, I think, what is what is necessary to to confront this this pandemic. That's great. That's great to hear. I'm, I'm so glad that 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 is uh, has improved for you, and I'm sure across the entire country. Um, I was reading uh, just last week uh, that some of the at home testing kits had been had been approved by, by the FDA, uh, basically where people can use a cotton swab at home, collect a small nasal sample and mail it into a lab. Um, have you heard much about that, uh, Phil? Uh, I've heard a little bit about it. Um, from what I understand, the accuracy and the validity of the tests is not gonna be qu quite what we can provide uh, from a medical center um, or at these testing facilities. Um, I think still a lot needs to be um, kind of researched in terms of the validity of those tests. Now, I will say that the state is taking 
pretty much all of the restrictions off of testing now. So pretty much anyone that wants a test can get a test. Um, the only rate limiting step on that is going to be um, the swabs, the viral media and the swabs. In terms of testing capacity, I think we're almost there being able to test anyone that wants it. We're even starting to reach out to long-term care facilities, um, residential group homes, first responders, even asymptomatic individuals. We would, what we would like to do is test every single resident and worker at long-term care facilities to make sure that there's no asymptomatic individuals or individuals who have recently developed it but have yet to develop symptoms and quickly isolate them so it doesn't run through those long-term care facilities that we've unfortunately seen it do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've seen so many different measures taken um, across our communities from lockdowns to social distancing, school, business closures, et cetera. And it seems that, you know, the goal of these measures was basically to avoid, hopefully avoid a run on, on medical services and uh, flatten the, flatten the curve, which, it seems like from, from the data that I'm reading is, has, has worked uh, at least to a degree in our country. Um, what are your overall thoughts on these measures um, as they stand today, uh, looking forward uh, and their overall effectiveness? Sure, so I think it really goes back to what we talked about when this all started. Um, social distancing is the only way to protect yourself. We have no immunity to this. We have no vaccine. Um, there's obviously uh, work being done on vaccine, but that is looking like it's gonna be 2021 at the earliest for a, a legitimate vaccine. And so the only way to protect yourself is social distancing and trying to reduce that germ transmission. Um, I think that we've done a very good job. Has it been painful? Absolutely. Um, it is not, not a fun time when you can't go out and and go out to a nice dinner or go out with your kids and let them kind of get out of the house. I mean, my wife and I were talking today, she's not been inside a store in 41 days. And it's just astonishing the changes that we've all had to make. Now, I think that the social distancing is working. Um, it really is flattening the curve. Um, it really is trying to, uh, it is, is honestly reducing germ transmission and everyone also needs to understand is the whole idea of social distancing is to keep yourself from obviously getting sick. But like you talked about, it's also about reducing the burden on the healthcare system. Um, fortunately, Kentucky is not projected to um, outstretch its bed capacity or ventilator capacity. Um, there in early projections were obviously that several states could get to the point where they would outstretch their bed and ventilator capacity. Fortunately, UK or not UK, but Kentucky has taken um, measures early and taken significant measures to help to quell the spread of this thing, and so we can protect our beds and ventilators for when we need them. Yeah. So speak, speaking of the state of Kentucky, kind of our, the measures that we're taking um, across the state, um, do you see? peak forming at all in the state of Kentucky for number of cases, number of deaths, or do you have an idea of when that may happen if it hasn't to this point? 
You know, it's tough to predict um, because of our social distancing and the measures that have been taken, that peak keeps getting pushed out. Um, and in it, initially it was, we were gonna peak uh, mid to late April and then it was pushed out to May. And then it's more of, it may not even be a peak. It might just be kind of a little slight rise or a hump, if you will. And so um, we still, we're still flattening, but, um, but it's hard to tell when we're going to truly peak. Uh, that is probably, you know, Dr. Stack uh, probably knows more about it than I do, but it, we're looking at at least uh, in the probably late May, maybe into the summer. Yeah, and that, I mean, I think that won't that depend so much on, on what we do with, you know, reopening, trying to reopen our economy in the state at some point and, you know, phasing some of these businesses back into, uh, into opening. Um, I mean, it's just such a difficult decision to me that, that lawmakers face and, you know, when to reopen, how to reopen, um, how to balance, you know, a need to, to restart a, an economy that quite honestly is struggling. Uh, we, we, we already saw GDP numbers contracted in Q1 um, and, and there's forecasts for a much deeper contraction in Q2, um, so striking a balance between, you know, a need to restart the economy with a need to stop this pandemic from further spreading and escalating, um, I think it's gonna be a very difficult chore. Yeah, and I think uh, there's no perfect answer. I mean, we are all learning as we go. This thing didn't exist six months ago. I mean, we are all learning and things are changing literally daily um, in the medical field and, you know, in the economy and government officials are having to make real tough choices based on a, an invisible enemy and a moving target. Um, I think that they've laid out some good plans in terms of a phased opening. Um, I think the key, honestly, the key to opening back up is being able to test enough to know where it is in the community and where it's not in the community. Um, and in order to isolate the individuals that um, could potentially spread it and allow the individuals that, you know, don't have it to start to be the pioneers of opening up the economy. Uh, I think the plan that they've got in place with a staged opening is going to be a good plan um, with, with the caveat that we may have to delay that, those steps along the way if we see a secondary peak because we've opened. Um, it's very likely we will see a secondary peak or a secondary rise, if you will, uh, once we start to open and people start to interact more. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, it makes me wonder what, what, what the future holds for, you know, uh, events like, like major sporting events and concerts and just how, how those things change. I know they will have to change at least for some period of time. Um, do you, do you, do you see a time, um, in the not too distant future where you, you pack a stadium with a hundred thousand fans? Wow. Um, it's hard to say. I can't even see that on the horizon right now. Um, now granted my horizon is cluttered with nonstop COVID preparations, planning and that kind of thing. Um, you know, for example, Disney world is suggesting that they will not open their parks until 2021. Um, and even then it will be a kind of a, I'm sure a soft opening, if you will, in which there'll be limited numbers 
think about the cruise industry. I mean, I don't know how the cruise industry is going to recover from this. Um, and these big sporting venues, I mean, Sweet 16, Super Bowl, those kind of things, who knows what those are going to look like next year. Um, it'll be, it'll be interesting, unfortunately, to see. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, another, another thing I want to discuss with you briefly, if there's so many conflicting reports out there on the actual fatality rate, um, of this, of this illness, um, and recently I've read, I've read many that are stating that, uh, in actuality, that the rate is much lower than what we originally thought. Uh, so just curious to get, hear your thoughts on, on the, uh, what you feel is the real, um, fatality rate. Yeah. So I, and I think that's accurate. I think the new data coming out is, uh, is very, is very good data. There's still not a lot of great data anywhere, but it's good data at least. Um, initially we thought it may have around a 3% uh, case fatality rate. Uh, fortunately, we've discovered through increased testing that somewhere at around 20 to 30% of individuals are completely asymptomatic. And um, so those individuals obviously don't even know they have it and they would have probably not been tested in the past. And those are the individuals that are driving that case fatality rate down. Uh, we actually had one just the other day that um, that we identified that was completely asymptomatic, that was tested uh, pre-procedurally um, in kind of the, one of the steps that uh, Dr. Stack and the governor have recommended in terms of testing individuals prior to um, undergoing any type of procedures in kind of that phased opening. And so we've actually identified one of those very individuals. So the case fatality rate, it looks like it's probably going to end up somewhere around 1%, which is great considering that that's a significant reduction from 3%. And I understand that everybody may say, well, okay, it only has a 1% fatality rate, but look at the number of Americans who have died from this. Um, I think that um, it's going to be hard in the end to find anyone that's not been affected by this in some manner. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you mentioned briefly, um, few minutes back about um, possible timeline for for a vaccine um, you know we have a pretty good idea that's going to be a while um, we, we just saw that uh, Gilead Sciences drug uh, remdesivir had some positive uh, results and appears to be showing some signs of shortening the time to recover uh, from the illness um, what are your thoughts on sort of these antivirals and their possible uh, effectiveness? Sure. So that, I guess, we, goes back to we create kind of a baseline in terms of understanding. So everyone talks about antibiotics. Um, you know, we all think about antibiotics when you get pneumonia. Well, that's a bacteria. Bacteria is relatively easy to treat. In terms of medications, we have tons of antibiotics out there. Now, when you flip the coin and talk about viruses, you're talking about the cold and the flu, and we don't have good medicines for those. Think about the flu. Think about how many, I'm sorry, the flu and the cold, but think about the cold. Think about how many individuals get the cold every year and go see their providers and are told to take over-the-counter medications, decongestants, you know, Tylenol, Motrin, that kind of thing. So that is how tricky this is to, to manage. Viruses are very difficult to treat medically in terms of antivirals and that kind of thing. Um, viruses mutate, um, and so a medication that may work uh, at one point doesn't work again, which is why if someone uh, has HIV, we put them on several antivirals. So that way, if the virus does mutate, that the 
other medications can um, can help kill it. Um, so, in terms of the medications for this, uh, I think remdesivir's got some promise. Um, I actually had our pharmacist check on the availability of it this very morning, and uh, it's going to be really tough for us to get. Um, you know, especially if the entire country is scrambling to get their hands on it. We saw the same thing with hydroxychloroquine, um, and that's an anti-malarial drug that doesn't even have any effect on, you know, viruses historically. So um, the medications will be tough to get. Um, they will probably be shifted to hotspots, and so places that are not necessarily deemed a hotspot may be uh, struggling to get their hands on those kind of medications. Um, we are also looking at steroids. Steroids can help reduce um, the inflammation in the lungs that creates the real issue that these patients develop. It's called ARDS, acute uh, respiratory distress syndrome, in which their lungs develop severe inflammation and they can't absorb that oxygen that's getting into their lungs. Their oxygen levels drop and then they obviously decompensate. And so there's been conflicting data on steroids and we are reevaluating that data almost daily to try to tailor our medication regimen. When it really boils down to it, there's nothing great out there. Um, quality oxygenation and ventilator management is the best thing that we, that as a whole, the medical community has right now. When you speak with uh, these pharmaceutical companies, do, do, do they give you an idea of kind of a timeline for uh, the ability, the availability of these drugs, or are you just kind of just in waiting? Um, a lot of times we are just kind of in waiting uh, because those timelines may change and may flux as well. And we saw that with test kits too, you know, it was, we're going to have, you know, a million by the end of the day or a million by the end of the week. And that never comes to fruition. And that, everything just gets pushed out because everyone's scrambling for the very same thing. As soon as someone says something or as soon as data comes out that suggests that something may help, everybody goes and gets it. And it's much like toilet paper. It's not on the shelves. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I know uh, a lot of folks um, go to, go to the ER uh, looking for treatment for all, all types of things from a bloody nose to cold to, to more severe things. Are you still seeing some of those more minor, uh, if you will, uh, accidents or uh, ailments? Are you seeing those patients still coming into the ER as often as, as they did prior to this outbreak or some of those people staying at home self-medicating? Yeah, so that's uh, kind of a twofold uh, answer for you. So we've seen about a 50% reduction in our volumes uh, when we were seeing around 85 a day. Uh, that's dropped down to about 45 a day. Uh, we still see some of the minor things here and there, and it's not, it may, we may see it as minor, but to them, they were concerned that it could get worse or that it may have been something else. Their belly pain turned out to, you know, be nothing, but they thought it was an appendicitis. That's a perfect reason to come to the emergency department. Um, what we've also seen on the flip side of that is people that have not come in for serious things, people that have not come in for heart attacks or strokes or appendicitis or something of that nature. And when they come in, they're horribly sick. Um, I had one just last week that had an abscess on her neck. And 
when that started, that would have probably been a very minor abscess that would have been very easy for me to manage um, in the ER, uh, drain it, maybe put her on some antibiotics and go home. But by the time she came in, this abscess had extended all the way down into her chest and was starting to surround her heart. And so she had to obviously be transferred to a higher level of care, went straight to emergency surgery. And so we're seeing those people that are not coming in when they should have. And I think it's because of fear. You know, they're concerned that if they come into a location that has COVID or coronavirus, then they may get it. Well, that very location that they're coming to is the location that I have to work in every day. I have to interact in that environment. And so we are making sure that it's clean and that it's safe because we have to go in there every day. You know, they may have one visit to the emergency department, but I'm in there four or five times a week for hours and hours on end. So our janitorial staff and housekeeping staff, EVS, our own nursing staff and physicians are making sure that this place is clean because we don't want to get sick either, much less get anyone else sick. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think I'm definitely more hesitant to, to walk into uh, to a doctor's office or take my child to the pediatrician at this point. Just, and it is a fear thing. It, 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 it's probably overdone. Uh, it probably is safer than, than we, we all think, but um, it definitely does make you think twice about scheduling that appointment. Um, so Phil, before I let you go, I, I was hoping you could provide our audience with, you know, some of the preventative measures that they can take, um, to, to hopefully, you know, stop the spread of this, this disease and, um, just some simple things that we can, we can all do and, and maybe change, uh, some of the, some patterns of behavior uh, that we take. Sure. So <clears throat> obviously limit, try to limit your uh, exposure. So stay home if you can. If you have to go out, uh, make sure that you're taking the proper steps when you do go out. So um, wearing a mask doesn't necessarily prevent you from getting it, but if you have it, then it helps prevent you from spreading it to other individuals. Um, when you go into a store, the last thing that you want to do is touch all the items in the store and the shopping carts and that kind of thing, and then touch your phone because you've got to pull up your shopping list and, and then put your phone and then somebody you know calls you and you put your phone up to your face and so now you've just touched everything in the store touched your phone and now your phone's touching your face you want to keep things away from your face so if you're in the store go in with maybe a paper list instead of a list on your phone leave your phone in your pocket don't take calls or texts when you're in the store so that way you're not contaminating your phone um, make sure that the things you are touching um, you're limiting touching things so if you're looking at apples try to visibly pick out the best one instead of touching a dozen of them touch one or two um, then when you do go to touch stuff and you're touching the shopping cart and that kind of thing avoid touching your face make sure you're not rubbing your eyes picking your nose coughing um, obviously coughing's a bad thing right now uh, but make sure you're not um, touching your face then when you go to leave the store uh, make sure that you wash your hands um, before you touch anything else. So you, your hands, think about your hands having all these germs on them now. So again, before you pull your phone out of your pocket or before you go and touch everything in your vehicle, open your vehicle door, wash your hands, and now you can touch your phone. You can start your car. You can do everything necessary. Um, those are the big things um, that I think everybody should be doing in terms of germ transmission reduction. Um, this virus can live on surfaces for days. 
So you have to be aware of that if you, you know, I know that stores are taking measures to clean carts and make sure that the stores are clean, but there's still germs out there. And if you are touching things and then touching your face, you're potentially um, infecting yourself with maybe not coronavirus, but maybe the flu or other germs. So just simple things, um, but just things that we need to, to keep in mind. You know, we see pictures of people with gloves on. Well, gloves really don't help you if you then touch your face with dirty gloves. Uh, I saw a picture of somebody standing in a store with, uh, they had pulled their gloves off with their mouth and were playing on their phone with their glove hanging out of their mouth. And I'm like, that glove's not really doing you any good. So just kind of think, you know, anything you touch potentially has germs and make sure that you're washing your hands after you touch that. That's really one of the biggest things you can do to help yourself. Yeah, those are great points. I, I've noticed uh, for myself when I have a mask on and the occasional uh, trip to the store that I've made, I do tend to touch the mask. I've realized and adjusted, and I, I know that's not good. It, it's just a, it's a natural instinct that I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to fight back. But speaking of washing hands, um, we all know the importance of washing our hands. What do you think about um, using hand sanitizer versus washing hands and the effectiveness of, of if properly used hand sanitizer is just fine um the big thing that hand sanitizer doesn't kill is like bacterial spores um like c diff and that kind of thing but the uh, hand sanitizer is is quite effective against viruses flu cough cold um coronavirus that kind of thing so if you you know properly lather your hands with the hand sanitizer and let it let it dry properly, then it should, it should have, it should cover you pretty well. Excellent. Great advice. Uh, Dr. Overall, thank you so much for taking the time out today to be with us. You've, you've provided some great information uh, to all of our listeners and also thank you for what you do uh, being on the front lines uh, and risking, you know, your health to save others. We can't thank you enough for what you do. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and just kind of help people understand what we're going through and, and what they can do to help themselves and keep themselves safe. Excellent. Thank you all for listening. Uh, that was Dr. Philip Overall, Medical Director of Emergency Services at St. Clair Regional Medical Center.